What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Thinking about their families. Joe Biden is giving his inaugural address. I promise you, I get it. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like you or worship the way you do or don't get their news from the same sources you do. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, or, or rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. Because here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Some days, when you need a hand. There are other days when we're called to lend a hand. That's how it has to be. That's what we do for one another. And if we are this way, our country will be stronger, more prosperous, more ready for the future. And we can still disagree. My fellow Americans, in the work ahead of us, we're going to need each other. We need all our strength to, preserve, to persevere through this dark winter. We're entering what may be the toughest and deadliest period of the virus. We must set aside politics and finally face this pandemic as one nation. One nation. And I promise you this, as the Bible says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We will get through this together, together. Look, folks, all my colleagues I serve with in the House and the Senate up here, we all understand the world is watching, watching all of us today. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested, and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. 
not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. And we'll lead not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. We'll be a strong and trusted partner for peace, progress, and security. Look, you all know we've been th through so much in this nation. And in my first act as president, I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silent prayer. Remember all those who we lost in this past year to the pandemic, those 400,000 fellow Americans, moms, dads, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. We'll honor them by becoming the people and the nation we know we can and should be. So I ask you, let's say a silent prayer for those who've lost their lives and those left behind and for our country. Amen. Folks, this is a time of testing. We face an attack on our democracy and on truth, a raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. Any one of these would be enough to challenge us in profound ways. But the fact is, we face them all at once, presenting this nation with a one of the gravest responsibilities we've had. Now we're going to be tested. Are we going to step up, all of us? It's time for boldness, for there's so much to do. And this is certain, you and I, by how we resolve these cascading crises of our era. We will rise to the occasion is the question. Will we master this rare and difficult hour? Will we meet our obligations and pass along a new and better world to our children? I believe we must. I'm sure you do as well. I believe we will. And when we do, we'll write the next great chapter in the history of the United States of America, the American story. A story that might sound something like a song that means a lot to me. It's called American Anthem. There's one verse that stands out, at least for me, and it goes like this. The work and prayers of century have brought us to this day. What shall be our legacy? What will our children say? Let me know in my heart when my days are through. America, America, I gave my best to you. Let's add, let's us add our own work and prayers to the unfolding story of our great nation. If we do this, then when our days are through, our children and our children's children will save us. They gave their best. They did their duty. They healed a broken land. My fellow Americans, I closed the day where I began with the sacred oath. Before God and all of you, I give you my word. I will always level with you. I will defend the Constitution. I'll defend our democracy. I'll defend America. And I'll give all, all of you, keep everything you, I do in your service. 
thinking not of power, but of possibilities, not of personal interest, but the public good. And together, we shall write an American story of hope, not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, a story of decency and dignity, love and healing, greatness and goodness. May this be the story that guides us, the story that inspires us, and the story that tells ages yet to come that we answered the call of history. We met the moment. Democracy and hope, truth and justice did not die on our watch but thrive. That America secured liberty at home and stood once again as a beacon to the world. That is what we owe our forebears, one another and generation to follow. So, with purpose and resolve, we turn to those tasks of our time, sustained by faith, driven by conviction, and devoted to one another and the country we love with all our hearts. May God bless America, and may God protect our troops. Thank you, America. Joe Biden has just delivered his inaugural address. Well, actually, I believe that there's a bunch of events following this. Well, they've been dis literally disinfecting the White House. While all this is going on, there's a crew over there just cleaning the place up. You know, what a mess. What a mess the Trumps have left. I'm going to just open the lines today. We'll pop back and forth if, you know, if anything's going on of consequence with regard to the inauguration and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we will go to it. But I think uh, most of the events of the day are now done uh, other than that. But if you want to share your thoughts on the end of Trump and the beginning of Biden, what does it mean to you this day? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here's another presentation. Let me introduce Amanda Gorman, our nation's first ever National Poet Laureate. Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace in the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it, somehow we do it, somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it. 
would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So, while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it This is uh, Senator Roy Blunt, by the way. He is a Republican, you, I believe from Missouri, and he's the uh, inaugural chair. I'm pleased to introduce Reverend Dr. Sylvester Beeman, the pastor of the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Wilmington, Delaware, a friend of President Biden for 30 years. As a nation and people of faith gathered in this historical moment, let us unite in prayer. God, we gather under the beauty of your holiness and the holiness of your beauty. We seek your face, your smile, your warm embrace. We petition you one more in this celebration. We pray for divine favor upon our president, Joseph R. Biden, and our first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, and their family. We further ask that you would extend the same favor upon our Vice President, Kamala D. Harris, 
and our second gentleman, Doug Imhoff, and their family. More than ever, more than ever, they and our nation need you. We need you, for in you we discover our common humanity. In our common humanity, we will seek out the wounded and bind their wounds. We will seek healing for those who are sick and diseased. We will mourn our dead. We will befriend the lonely, the least, and the left out. We will share our abundance with those who are hungry. We will do justly to the oppressed, acknowledge sin, and seek forgiveness thus grasping reconciliation. In discovering our humanity, we will seek the good in and for all our neighbors. We will love the unlovable, remove the stigma of the so-called untouchables. We will care for our most vulnerable, our children, the elderly, emotionally challenged, and the poor. We will seek rehabilitation beyond correction, We'll extend opportunity to those locked out of opportunity. We will make friends of our enemies. We will make friends of our enemies. People, your people, shall no longer raise up weapons against one another. We will rather use our resources for the national good and become a beacon of life and goodwill to the world and neither shall we learn hatred anymore. We'll lie down in peace, and not make our neighbors afraid. In you, O oh God, we discover our humanity. In our humanity, we discover our commonness. Beyond the difference of color, creed, origin, political party, ideology, geography, and personal preferences, we'll become greater stewards of your environment, preserving the land, reaping from it a sustainable harvest, and securing its wonder and miracle-giving power for generations to come. This is our benediction, that from these hallowed grounds, where slaves labored to build this shrine and citadel to liberty and democracy, let us all acknowledge from the indigenous Native American to those who recently received their citizenship, from the African American to those whose foreparents came from Europe and every corner of the globe, from the wealthy to those struggling to make it, from every human being regardless of their choices, that this is our country. As such, teach us, O oh God, as such, teach us, O oh God, to live in it, love in it, be healed in it, and reconcile to one another in it, lest we miss kingdom's goal. To your glory, majesty, dominion, and power forever. Hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. In the strong name of our collective faith, amen.
Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated and remain in your seats while the president and official party depart the platform. For safety reasons, your ushers will release your section in an organized manner, following the playing of our national march, The Stars and Stripes Forever. Okay, and welcome back. Joe Biden is now officially the president of the United States. The event is over. We've heard from the poet laureate. We have heard from Lady Gaga. We've heard from Garth Brooks. And so let's just have a conversation here about what happened and where we go from here. Are you looking forward to never again even thinking about Donald Trump? I am, frankly. I'm looking forward to not talking about him anymore, although it's going to be difficult. How is this transition affecting you, your family, your friends? What does it mean to you? There, this is uh, uh, so very, very sad. There's an article over at Raw Story today titled, I'm the laughing stock of my family. Conspiracy theory believers implode as they watch Biden getting sworn in. You know, one of the theories going around, if you want to call it a theory, is that Joe Biden and Donald Trump actually changed faces magically. And that was actually Donald Trump being sworn in and uh, Joe Biden flying off to Florida or some weird thing. But what it reminds me of is the story of uh, Ellen White. Ellen White started the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There was a big religious revival in the United States in the late 1800s, the late 19th century. And Ellen White had this vision that the world was going to end, and she had gathered a pretty good-sized circle of people around her over the years as a preacher and evangelist, and so she took them up on a mountaintop, or something close to that, and waited for the day that she had picked. She said, this is the day, you know, that that it's all going to happen, that the world is going to end, and the world didn't end. But Ellen White reinvented her religion. She called it the Seventh-day Adventists. And it's still around today. And, it, you know, it's, it's a, a very benign and nice. I know Seventh-day Adventists. They're vegetarians. <laughs> they, they keep the Sabbath. So I don't know what's going to happen to Trump's followers, particularly the followers of these bizarre conspiracy theories, whether they're just going to burrow in deeper or whether they're going to have this moment of awakening. But if you know anybody like this in your family or in your circle, you know, how are they dealing with it? So, you know, there's a lot to talk about. So anyhow, let's pick up some phone calls here. Pam in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hi, I just wanted to make a couple statements. I'm so grateful that sane people came together and ousted this very dangerous person from our White House. I don't think he's gone. I think he's still got a cult following that we have to watch. But I also want President Biden to be aware that there's not gonna be any unity in this country until Trump and especially those that aided him are held accountable. I'm tired of the Democrats trying to say, well, for the good of the country, we've gotta let this slide. Well, it's slid as far as it's gonna go. That's how I feel. Yeah, we tried that in 74, and it didn't quite work out. Right. We just look weak, you know. And as far as... Well, and not only that, it established a precedent for Republican presidents breaking the law and getting away with it. Absolutely, yes. 
nobody's going to make the Trump supporters worse. They're as bad as they're going to get. Nothing we do is going to placate them or make them see Joe Biden as a legitimate president. So I think they should go ahead and completely impeach him in the Senate, although I don't have a lot of confidence in Lindsey Graham and mm-hmm. McConnell, definitely. But To that point, Pam, of... If I could just speak to that point, during World War II, you know, World War II was brought about by cult followings of fascist leaders in Japan with Tojo and in Germany with Hitler. And in both cases, you had people who right up until the very end of the war and even for some months after the war were willing to die for these people that they had just basically sworn their lives to. And I think there are some analogies to the fervent followers of Donald Trump and what it took to break that cult, to break the back of that cult was the Nuremberg trials that exposed to the world and irrefutably to all Germans the horrors of the Nazi regime and the trial of of Japanese war criminals as well. The emperor coming out and saying, no, it was all a lie, you know, because Hirohito was allowed to remain in office, but he had to do some serious crow eating. And it took that reckoning, that very serious reckoning to shatter the cult. In other words, to cause people to wake up and go, oh my God, I've been following a cult leader all these years, you know, that kind of thing. And I think, I think we're in this, a very mm-hmm. similar place. And that's why I completely agree with you that there has to be accountability. Back to you, Pam. Yes. Thank you. That makes me see it in a different way that possibly they will come around. I live in Ohio, so it's hard for me to believe <laughs> Mm. Any cult member will come around, but I think that's right. I think that's why so many of the people that crashed through the Capitol building thought they wouldn't get in trouble. It's Mm. like, oh, they'll slap us on the wrist and send us on our way. But I'm glad to see that they are tracking them down, and it gives me a little bit of hope, and I do. I and all my friends, it's like we're finally feeling a little bit better because... President Biden did actually get in. I was afraid that the Russians or whoever would really be able to steal the election again. And I've followed Trump for a long time since he said those disgusting things about his daughter. And it's, I don't know why people don't see how evident it is how DPM is in with the Russians, especially money-wise. Yeah, and now also the Saudis, and he's got business deals in China. But the people who helped him get elected, certainly. I'm with you, Pam, and we have to have a reckoning. It was necessary at the end, at the fall of the apartheid regime and in South Africa also, you know, kind of breaking a cult, in that case, the cult of white supremacy that held so many people both in chains, in bondage, and, you know, and held their minds in South Africa. And uh, that, that has to come. Pam, I want to move along, but thank you for the call. It's, it's great to hear from you. Tony in uh, Yakutz, Oregon. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. God, uh, where do I start? Um, the last couple of weeks have been so chaotic. And for that matter, the end of the last four years, in terms of how it has affected me, starting with the fear 
I noticed in the last couple of weeks I've, I've settled down. I don't look at my phone in the middle of the night as much. I don't look at my Twitter feed as much. That's gone away. And I look at my grandchildren, who I haven't seen in over a year since the lockdown, but I do Zoom with them, and I have more hope for them. And I can't explain Having seen the feed that you and C-SPAN was giving us this morning, it was like, I don't know, if you banished evil from a location, it's almost as if evil was just dispensed. It was exorcised. And I hope that got all the electronic devices that were left behind in the White House and all these, just the Spirit. I, I don't think we have enough sage in America to clean out the bad mm. juju they left in the house. But it is hopeful. I feel really, really hopeful for the first time in four years. Now, I am old enough to know history, and history tells me that his followers who, I mean, I know Northern, Northern Ireland and how people wanted to, mm. to just have separate country and and I know how the underground works all over the world and Nazis are known or let's say fascists they're known for violence and now they've seen our I mean they've been in there for four years and they've now they know our underbelly they know our weaknesses and we've got to be vigilant anyway thank you for taking my call that's how I feel I love your show and Good luck to all of us. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, amen. And God bless us, everyone. Tony, thank you for the call. And I share your sentiments. Kind of our day of catharsis here. Your thoughts on what's going on. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. How has the Trump presidency affected your family? How do you hope the Biden presidency will? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax the way car buying should be. 
For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from George Packer's new book, Our Man. The subtitle is Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century. This is from the uh, prologue. Holbrook? Yes, I knew him. I can't get his voice out of my head. I can hear it saying, you haven't read that book, you really need to read it. Saying, I feel, and I hope this doesn't sound too self-satisfied, that in a very difficult situation where nobody has the answer, I at least know what the overall questions and moving parts are. Saying, gotta go, Hillary's on the line. That voice, calm, nasal, a trace of older New York, a sing-song cadence when he was being playful, but always doing something to you, cajoling, flattering, bullying, seducing, needling, analyzing, one-upping you, applying continuous pressure like a strong underwater current so that by the end of the conversation, even two minutes on the phone, you found yourself far out from where you'd started, unsure how you got there, and mysteriously exhausted. He was 6'1", but he seemed bigger. He had long, skinny limbs and a barrel chest and broad, square shoulder bones on top of which sat his strangely small head and encased within it the sleepless brain. His feet were so far from his trunk that as his body wore down and the blood stopped circulating properly, they swelled up and became marbled red and white like steak. He had special shoes made and carried extra socks in his leather attache case, sweating through half a dozen pairs a day, stripping them off on long flights and draping them over his seat pocket in first class, or else cramming used socks next to the classified documents in his briefcase. He wrote a book about ending the war in Bosnia, the place in history that he always craved, though it was never enough, with his feet planted in a Brookstone Shiatsu foot massager. One morning, he showed up late for a meeting in the Secretary of State's suite at the Waldorf Astoria in his stocking feet, shirt untucked and fly half-zipped, padding around the room and picking grapes off a fruit basket, while Madeleine Albright's furious stare tracked his every move. During a video conference call from the UN mission in New York, his feet were propped up on a chair, while down in the White House Situation Room, their giant distortion completely filled the wall screen and so disrupted the meeting that President Clinton's National Security Advisor finally ordered a military aide to turn off the video feed. Holbrook put his feet up everywhere, in the White House, on other people's desks and coffee tables, for relief and for advantage. Near the end, it seemed as if all his troubles were collecting in his feet. Atrial fibrillation, marital tension, thwarted ambition, conspiring colleagues, hundreds of thousands of air miles, corrupt foreign leaders, a war that would not yield to the relentless force of his will. But at the other extreme of his feet, the ice blue eyes were on perpetual alert. Their light told you that his intelligence was always awake and working. They captured nearly everything and gave almost nothing away. Like one-way mirrors, they looked outward, not inward. I never knew anyone quicker to size up a room, an adversary, a newspaper article, a set of variables in a complex situation, even his own imminent death. The ceaseless appraising told me of a manic spirit churning somewhere within the low voice and languid limbs. Once in the 1980s, he was walking down Madison Avenue when an acquaintance passed him and called out, Hi, Dick. Holbrook watched the man go by, then turned to his companion. I wonder what he meant by that. Yes, his curly hair never obeyed the comb, and his suit always looked rumpled, and he couldn't stay off the phone or TV, and he kept losing things, and he ate as much food as fast as he could, once slicing open the tip of his nose on a clamshell and bleeding through a pair of cloth napkins. Yes, he was in almost every way a disorderly president but his eyes never lost focus. So much thought, so little inwardness. He could not be alone. He might have had to think about himself. Maybe that was something he couldn't afford to do. Leslie Gelb, Holbrook's friend of 45 years and recipient of multiple daily phone calls, would butt into a monologue and ask, 
What's Obama like? Holbrook would give a brilliant analysis of the president. How do you think you affect Obama? Holbrook had nothing to say. Where did it come from, that blind spot behind his eyes that masked his inner life? It was a great advantage over the rest of us because the propulsion from idea to action was never broken by self-scrutiny. It was also a great vulnerability, and finally, it was fatal. I can hear the voice saying, it's your problem now, not mine. He loved speed. Franz Klammer's fearless downhill run for the gold in 1976 was a feat Holbrook never finished admiring until he almost believed that he had been the one throwing himself into those dangerous turns at Innsbruck. He pedaled his bike straight into a swarming Saigon intersection while talking about the war to a terrified blonde journalist just arrived from Manhattan. He zipped through Paris traffic while lecturing his State Department boss on the status of the Vietnam peace talks. His Humvee careened down the dirt switchbacks of the Mount Ingman road above besieged Sarajevo, chased by the armored personnel carrier with his doomed colleagues. He loved mischief. It made him endless fun to be with and got him into unnecessary trouble. In 1967, he was standing outside Robert McNamara's office on the second floor of the Pentagon, a 26-year-old junior official hoping to catch the Secretary of Defense on his way in or out for no reason other than self-advancement. A famous colonel was waiting, too, a decorated paratrooper back from Vietnam, where Holbrook had known him. Everything about the colonel was pressed and creased, his uniform shirt, his face, his pants carefully tucked into his boots and delicately bloused about around his calves. He must have spent the whole morning on them. That looks really beautiful, Holbrook said, and he reached down and yanked a pants leg all the way out of its boot. The colonel started yelling. Holbrook laughed. George Packer's book, Power Man. Anthony in Los Angeles. Hey, Anthony, what's up? Good. I just want to say I agree with what Pam said before. Trumpism is not going away. We should have taken care of it at the end of the Civil War. We never should have let Jim Crow take hold, but now we're reaping uh, what we sow. And my main point is I actually think Trump and Trumpism is good for liberals because what it did is it took the heat off of the liberal protest movements now that cops have to deal with these right-wing guys. I have a lot of friends who became really active in police brutality protests, and they've been arrested. They've been put under surveillance. And in the last couple of years, the heat was really taken off of them as the cops had to deal with the, the right-wing guys. So I think actually liberals need to reach out to, like, the libertarians and the uh, anti-government types. And we're all concerned about state power. That's what it all comes down to. When you look at these, the police brutality and our attempts at filing lawsuits, they just throw some money at us. They settle. But nothing ever changes when it comes to the actual laws that allow the police to do it. The local politicians really don't care. Yeah. yeah. With the George W. Bush presidency after 9-11, we, you know, with the basically instituting a national surveillance state and Bush and Cheney taking onto themselves the power to authorize, you know, dark forces in America, basically, <laughs> to capture people, torture people, render people to third countries where they would be, you know, imprisoned in god-awful conditions and things. And all the abuses that Ed Snowden revealed George W. Bush and Dick Cheney essentially put our country on a course that tracked right through the Trump presidency. And had Trump been more competent and had the virus not happened and had the Republicans held on to the House of Representatives, I believe that Trump would still be our president. And that would be the end of the republic. But as it was, this was a huge wake-up call for America that, you know, the Bush pointed us in the wrong direction with the whole, you know, freak-out response to 9-11 and the security theater and everything else. 
and hopefully we can pull back from this. And I think we are. I think you're absolutely right, Anthony. I think that people are waking up to the horrors of that. What do you think? I completely agree. Okay, Anthony, thank you for the call. Let's see here, uh, Randy in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. What a great day. Tom, when you said What Ellen do I have wrong White, about Ellen White, the, Randy? We have about a half a minute. Okay. She, when did she go to the mountain and wait for the world to end? She never did. She didn't? No. The great disappointment of 1844, Ellen White was no part of that. That was uh, a guy by the name no, of No, I'm Miller. talking about Ellen White when she... When she I, I read a biography of her years ago. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Are you are you knowledgeable about her history? Not very knowledgeable, but I, I mean that that is that's not Ellen G. White. What okay. was the book? I you know I don't recall. It was 20, 25 years ago when I was actually interested in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. They were big supporters of the vegetarian community for abused kids. We started. Randy, I got to run, but okay, I'll check my facts later. Thank you. Anthony just called and said I was wrong in my story about Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventists. I may be. It, it was 20, 30 years ago. We had, uh, back in uh, the early 1980s, the local group of Seventh-day Adventists had kind of adopted the children's village and school that Louise and I ran. And, you know, I read a biography, a book about Ellen White and, and the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that's what I remembered. But I may be wrong, so, I'll, you know, I'll look it up when I have an opportunity during one of the breaks. But anyway, I, whether the story is correct or apocryphal, I think there were many people who did that. Some of those cults or religions, as it were, got reinvented as real religions. I believe that the Jehovah's Witnesses came about as a result also of one of those, one of those kind of moments. But my point is, you know, what does it take to break people out of a cult? And when they break out, do they reinvent themselves in a way that's productive and positive? as at least in my story, the Seventh-day Adventist did, or do they just go, you know, descend more and more into madness and craziness and insanity and all that kind of thing? James in Chicago. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Today? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Uh, first, I want to say I agree with Pam that, uh, you know, you know, politicians and, 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 and law enforcement should be hired, held to a higher standard of law, yet they're the ones who continue to break the law and get away with it. This is disheartening for us, you know. Biden's inaugural, I like, and this was a little while back. There was a kid of color. I'm an African-American male. He walked up to Biden. I don't know if, if this had to do with Floyd's death or, or not, but he hugged him, and Biden looked at him and said, you know what, everything is going to be all right, I promise you. And, and he has not backed away from speaking to systematic racism in this country, telling everybody things are going to be good. And, and I started liking this guy. Uh, for some time now, even though I wanted Bernie or, or Liz, but and listen to his uh, his inauguration. Also, he's not backing down. He wants to be fair with everybody. And, and like I said, I think with with uh, Joe, things are going to be where well, they're going to be a lot better anyway. You know, so that's my yeah. comment for today. I am hopeful that you are right, James, and, and I think you are. I, I'm very optimistic right now. I realize that there's going to be times when, you know, we may disagree with uh, Joe Biden on policy or we may heartily endorse it or, you know, there's going to be times to work for or against. But, you know, 
thank God this thing is over. Yes, and, sir. And I also wonder, you know, one of the earlier callers, James, said that uh, he would get up, you know, wake up in the, in the middle of the night and check his phone to see what, you know, fresh hell Donald Trump uh, brought us. I did the same thing, you know, particularly for the last couple of years, as I became more and more certain that Donald Trump was probably going to try to start a world war to hang on to power or something like that. And I'm wondering, are we all kind of going through withdrawal now, or will we be over the next week or so, from drama? You know, it's like watching Game of Thrones, you know, it's uh, complete with the rape and, and, and the killings. We had six people die at the Capitol two weeks ago. It's like watching a, a never-ending TV series where, you know, you just know, oh, God, something terrible is going to happen this week, too. And the point that... Oh, I was just going to say, it got to the point, Tom, that I hated to hear that man talk. You know, everything he says is a lie, and I just couldn't stand it. So a lot of times I was just sick of the TV, well, you shut up, you know. But things yeah. look like they're going to be a lot better now. Yeah, no, I, I reached the point where when Trump was doing his, I'm going to save you from the virus stuff, you know, where he was doing his daily briefings. He would do that after I got off the air, and I'd come down from my studio, my my office, and she'd have it on the TV, and I'd have to leave the room. You know, it's like you know she could deal with it. She could watch it and just think dispassionately and figure out what he's saying, and even tell me what he's saying. I was getting physically ill. I mean, I just reached the point where where Donald Trump on television or listening to his voice was so affecting my blood pressure, my my psychological well being, my everything. And I'm like, thank God it's over. I don't Amen, know how to brother. more emphatically say that. Yeah, and I think all over America there are people saying, thank God it's over. James, you're in Chicago. You hearing from friends, family, uh, any kind of <laughs> loud cheer? Well, well, I haven't been out, you know, with the virus and everything, but, but people, are, right. people are fed up. I don't know if you remember when you were out in Deere and you signed my book for me. Uh, that they, oh, uh, uh, hey, cool, James. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right. That's it for today, though. Yeah. Well, James, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. And, and you know, I truly appreciate your sentiments. And I, I, I just, you know, on this, and, and thank you, James. On this day, this kind of national day of catharsis, normally I try to, you know, get callers off the phone in a minute or so because there's so many people stacked up. And, we, and our, you know, we've got a lot of callers, but... I want to give people a little time to share their thoughts, their experiences. How has the Trump presidency affected your family? Has somebody in your family died from COVID because Donald Trump never took it seriously? We are 4% of the world's population. We have 20% of the world's deaths and infections because Donald Trump chose not to do the, take this seriously. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about where we go in the future. What are your greatest hopes for Joe Biden? You're listening to Tom Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Monica L. Smith's book, Cities, the First 6,000 Years. This is from Chapter 1, titled Why Cities. As an archaeologist, my favorite place in Rome is not the Colosseum or the Forum. It's the ancient trash dump of Monte Testacio. Right in the middle of the city, it's a giant mound of broken pottery where the ancient Romans threw away the containers used to ship wine and olive oil all over the Mediterranean. Each of those vessels was about half the height of a person and made of coarse clay that would have roughed up a stevedore's hands. Their odd shape of two handles and a pointy base made them good for packing into a ship's hold or standing upright on a sandy shoreline, but very inconvenient for anything else. 
After a cargo of them arrived at its destination on the hustling shores of the Tiber, at the very heart of the Roman world, a few were reused and a few were recycled. Over the centuries, the pile of discards grew, with the result that one of the famous hills of Rome is actually not a hill at all, but of human construction, a landfill, essentially. Today, Monte Testacio is topped by trendy nightclubs and has been endlessly mined for construction, but there are still the remains of 25 million ancient containers poking up from the vegetation of the hillside. Now consider a very different metropolis. My favorite part of Tokyo, the backside of the Shukiji fish market, that part that tourists don't visit. Shukiji is enormous and the passageways are crowded with plastic buckets and barrels teeming with every kind of creature that you can imagine from the briny deep. Crabs attempt to crawl their way out of baskets, little fish are piled up in ice buckets, and great slabs of tuna glisten under the Klieg lights. The market is open to everyone, with chefs and restaurant owners jostling with homemakers for a clearer view of the day's catch. It's a world without friendly chit-chat, punctuated by the dangerous darting movements of souped-up forklifts that dodge their way in and out of the buildings and heap up their discards out back. Behind the market is an enormous dump of plastic foam shipping boxes used to transport the globally sourced tuna, squid, and shrimp from each morning's auctions. The pile of containers is taller than a two-story building, and so large that it is continually cleared by bulldozer. Some of the cartons are trampled and broken in the process with bits and pieces that spill further into the passageway. In between the endless runs of machinery, merchants and their helpers come to pick through the heaps of box fragments, sorting through the pile to find ones that aren't too broken. They carry them off to repack with fish or whatever else they're selling. Ancient Rome and modern Tokyo are literally a world apart, but if we stand back and look at them as cities, they have identical characteristics. In addition to markets and trash, there are multi-story buildings, long streets, sewer pipes, water mains, public squares, and a downtown zone of financial institutions and government offices. There are a thousand varieties of sounds and smells competing with the weather and daylight that frame the skyline in the built environment. There are crowds of people, rich, poor, young, old, female, gay, straight, trans, able, disabled, employed, students, jobless, residents, and visitors. Production and consumption opportunities are scaled up in cities to provide not only more things, but also more things per person, a completely ironic abundance given that urban residences tend to be much smaller than their rural counterparts. In the midst of so much abundance, the only solution is to cycle through possessions faster, turning everything into trash. It's the act of discard that provides the most telling evidence of urban activity, whether it's a broken potsherd from 2,000 years ago or a fragment of a plastic crate that was shattered this morning. Once you start to look for the concentrated detrius of your own urban life, it's everywhere. In the trash cans that bear the proud logo of the downtown business improvement district, in the dumpster parked outside a building that signals the renovation taking place inside, in the garbage truck that obstructs your commute, in the legions of sanitation workers employed to sweep the streets and subways and haul out the accumulations of discards. Trash has a familiar rhythm and concentration. Holidays bring a hangover of extra full trash bins. Parades and festivals and summer weekends in the park are witnessed through their aftermath of overflowing trash containers. Whether directly or by proxy, an urban obsession with trash is everywhere, and once you start to look, you won't be able to stop seeing it. Congratulations. You're an archaeologist. Move your gaze upward or to the side, you might notice it's not just trash that silently tells the story of urban life. Your own metropolis, even if it's new, has many traces that reveal its history before you moved.
through its streets. Maybe it's a bolt hole in the sidewalk where a telephone booth used to stand, or an out-of-use railroad track now embedded in the asphalt of the city's street. Maybe it's a building that has been updated once or twice, resulting in the pastiche of a Victorian facade with mirrored glass windows, or a modernist concrete structure fronted by flowers and cheerful painted windowsills. And maybe it's a newly cut ditch in the street where you can see the layered pavements of prior years right up to the present. Buildings and streets and parks serve as a living map of variable time, a collection of structures that all exist simultaneously, whether they were constructed a millennium ago, in your grandparents' time, or just last week. Your growing archaeological insights serve you well when looking not only at modern cities, but also at the ancient cities that are found by the hundreds on nearly every continent. Such famous ones such as Rome, to not-so-famous ones with romantic names like Tikal, Telbrock, and Expion. The book Cities, the First 6,000 Years by Monica L. Smith. Oh, welcome back. Rick in Rotunda, West Florida. It says you disagree with me. About what? Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Uh, Medicare, lowering the age, etc. I'm down in Florida, and one of the big concerns is in our Social Security every month, they deduct a Medicare contribution. It's $148 a month, and that helps support the Medicare system. And when I retired in 2012, that was 110 bucks they were taking out of me. Now they're taking 148. People down here are really concerned that, first of all, we feel that the Medicare system is almost bankrupt anyway. And if we start adding additional folks on this program, we lower the age, whatever it is, that contribution is going to triple because the program is not a solvent type of program. And that comes out of our Social Security. And that's the big concern here, that it's going to be 500 bucks Rick, a month. Yeah, I get it. And I know that that's been the propaganda coming out of organizations like FreedomWorks. I don't know if they've specifically said that, but I've read, you know, numerous websites and had gotten emails from right-wing sources saying, you know, Medicare for all is going to, is going to wipe out seniors. It's a lie. Rick, it's a lie. You really have nothing to worry about. First of all, if Medicare is extended to everybody in the country, right now, the federal government over the last 20 years or so has actually reduced Medicare benefits for seniors. The co-pays have been going up, the drug prices are going up, all kinds of things are going up. Medicare is actually getting more expensive over time, as you point out. Seniors are not a large enough voting block and they don't vote Medicare rabidly enough that there are politicians who are terrified of Medicare voters. In fact, there's not even really a Medicare voting block. There's, there's a Social Security voting block, but not so much for Medicare. If everybody in the country is covered by Medicare, you can bet your bottom dollar that just like literally every other developed country in the world and probably a third of the developing countries in the world, that program is going to get up to snuff. Talk to Canadians, talk to Germans, talk to French people, talk to the Brits, talk to, talk to Swedes or Norwegians, uh, talk to Italians or even the Greeks who have serious problems with their system. None of them are willing to go to the kind of system America has where the average family is paying between four and $6,000 a year more for medical services than in any other developed country in the world. 
So number one, if everybody goes on Medicare, we're gonna save about a trillion dollars a year, certainly at least $800 billion a year that we can document that is being sucked out of the system by health insurance executives, dividend payments to the insurance companies, fraud and waste, all the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people who are, quote, claims processing, when in fact what they're doing is looking for excuses to say no and all that kind of stuff. We've got a giant bloodsucker attached to our back in the form of the for-profit health insurance industry. And they will tell any kind of lie to keep those billions of dollars flowing to them. I mean, United Healthcare, one of their CEOs made $1.6 billion. Dollar Bill McGuire, they called him. So if we were to extend Medicare to everybody, number one, you've got a huge pool. That's every person in the country paying into it. In Canada, it's about $140 a month. Every family pays, period, right, right across the board. And that gives you everything and no deductibles, right? And pretty good coverage on pretty much everything. Different countries do it in different ways. In different provinces, actually, in Canada do it in different ways. But you will see a voting block that politicians will be terrified of when everybody has access to Medicare. And then, you know, for the rich people who are sending out the emails and posting the stuff on Facebook saying, hey, if you're old, be, be afraid, be, you know, join us in fighting Medicare expansion. For those people, just like in other developed countries, there will be health insurance companies that will come along and say, okay, rich person, give us $25,000, $30,000 a year, and we'll give you a health insurance policy that guarantees that you get your private room in the hospital when you go in, that we'll fly you on a private jet to the best facilities in the country, that will bring you into the country when you're outside the country, that will give you all the amenities that Medicare doesn't. That's, it'll be a supplementary program that'll be available for very wealthy people. And, you know, I mean, this is how it works in every other country. So, Rick, take a breath. It's going to be okay. Yeah, well, I, I hope you're right, but thanks for the time, Tom. Yeah, you're welcome, Rick. The way I know I'm right is this is how it works in every other developed country in the world. Literally not one of them. You do not hear Germans saying, we want the American healthcare system. You don't hear Canadians saying, oh, we want to get rid of our Medicare. Never. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So show up, right? Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a great new year. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.